Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This show is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal and sign up for my wine club. I am preparing all the materials right now. It's about to go out. And boy, this is going to be a great year for all the wine club shipments. I'm so excited to introduce new wines to you and give you new learning opportunities. Wineaccess.com slash normal. Get 10% off your first order. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. Today's guest is Felicity Carter, probably the most brilliant journalist in wine and certainly one of the only ones doing vital investigative work in the field of wine health and the neo-prohibitionist movement. Felicity is Australian. She lives in Germany. And from 2008 to 2021, she was editor-in-chief of Meininger's Wine Business International, which is a unbelievably successful global English language magazine published by Meininger Verlag, one of Germany's oldest publishing houses. She reported from 22 countries in that position. She writes for Decanter, The Guardian, pretty much every other major prestigious wine publication out there. She's such a great critical thinker. Thank you so much for being here, Felicity. Oh, I'm blushing. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) So let's discuss the history of what is going on with the neo-prohibitionist movement and how it is affecting wine. And I'll say this, in April 2019, I had Christopher Snowden, the head of lifestyle economics for the Institute of Economic Affairs in the UK, as a guest. And he had written an article that contested the 2018 Lancet report about how alcohol is as bad as tobacco and we had this conversation about this J-shaped curve and the new movement of prohibition, and he really warned against this. And your and my mutual friend Tom Wark has also talked about yes. this. Um, also, the guy from the Silicon Valley Bank report. And I feel like when I did that show in 2019, nobody else, like it just fell flat. Nobody did anything. Mm, And thank God you have really picked up the torch again, because this has been going on. It's not like this has been going on since 2018, but we as an industry have completely ignored it. And you are bringing it to the fore (laughs) and making people take notice. So, well, I I think this story is actually so amazing that, uh, you know, when I tell people what I've discovered, they can't believe it. They absolutely can't believe it. You know, it just came from nowhere. It didn't, though, because all of a no, sudden... No, it didn't. <laughs> right? No, it didn't. So, like, right. okay, so, so let's talk about that background, because this is the World Health Organization, the WHO. They started making these recommendations, <laughs> and this started in 2018, probably even before that. So where did this come from? I mean, oh, they had well, that's this... a very good question. As my friend Stu Smith says, the malevolent hand here is a very interesting question, but... I think we should lay down before we get to the malevolent hand question, which there is no doubt there is one. What happened in 2022, which was really the turning point in this turning down the alcohol flow report where they had this multi-prong approach discouraging people from drinking alcohol? This is the World Health Organization. 
Tell us about that. Okay, so so really this began in 2018 with something called the SAFER report. And since 2018, the WHO has been making an increasingly uh, draconian set of recommendations around alcohol, which are absolutely affecting government policy. So in August 2022, they released a document called Turning Down the Alcohol Flow, which was about uh, alcohol in Europe. Now, to put this in context, alcohol is a big problem. It's a huge problem. I think it's something like one in 10 people in the EU are going to be negatively impacted by alcohol. And that's from domestic violence to car accidents to cirrhosis to all of the dreadful things that happen with with alcohol. I would also turn that around, though, and say that 90 percent of people would not be affected by it. Oh, that's true. But 10% okay. is quite a lot. It is a lot, but I'm just saying we need to keep both sides of the equation on this when we talk about it, because this is one of the big things that they harp on, that everyone's going to be a raging alcoholic, right? Yes. This is the thing that they they don't distinguish between light, moderate and heavy drinking. Now, heavy drinking is a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And there's no doubt about that. But light to moderate drinking is the contested area. This is where the J-curve comes into it. This has been observed for more than 50 years, that light to moderate drinkers have lower all cause mortality than the rest of the population. And the question is, is why is that? And then it's, a you know, alcohol is dose dependent. The more that you drink, the worse it gets. So at a very low level, you get these great health benefits. And then as you increase the dose, uh, you rapidly begin to harm yourself. So the question is, why did they stop talking about light to moderate drinking? And why did they just talk about alcohol drinking? And this all goes back to 2018 with some of their documents, which I'll I'll talk to in a second. But you asked about the turning down the alcohol flow. So what they recommended in that is extraordinary if you look very closely at it. They want six different areas to be looked at. One is pricing. They want more tax. Uh, on alcohol, they want something called minimum pricing, which is that alcohol can't be sold below a certain amount. Now, actually, that was done in Scotland, and Scotland had something like 13% fewer alcohol-related deaths. So minimum pricing works, right? But they want more tax as well. It's actually better for producers too. Isn't yes. It? Yeah, it that's right. Them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They want a crackdown on marketing. So, and that would include, they want this to happen globally. They don't want anyone to get a tax deduction for marketing alcohol. They want to crack down on the use of influencers and people who are doing, you know, digital Instagram marketing and stuff. So I'm just going through the sort of uncontroversial ones. There's two others. They want more community action and they want a bigger health response. So what they want is they want things like the community to be more involved. They want to lower the stigma for people to get help for alcohol problems. So there's no problem about any of that. Mm -mm, But there's a couple of other things buried in there which are a little bit more problematic. One is they want health labeling. So they want to actually say on alcohol bottles, not just nutrition, you know, calories and so on, but they want to say that alcohol is bad for you. And they want maybe in the best all possible worlds to have cigarette style labeling, which is, you know, those horrible pictures and stuff. So so there's that. Well, actually, hold on a second. Not everybody does know because in the US, we do not have that. Oh, okay. So Canada has it and the UK and and Australia has it and the EU, I think, has it. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? Okay. So if you buy a packet of cigarettes in the EU, it will have a label on it that says something like smoking will give you lung cancer and it will have a picture of a blackened lung or it will have a picture of an amputated foot or it will have a picture of somebody who's, you know, got got something. These are horrible pictures. When it's they were first, so disgusting. 
Yeah, well, when when they first were put on um, cigarettes, a lot of people said that they didn't want them, not because of the health impact. They didn't want children to see them because they're really horrible pictures. I don't know if they've been effective or not. I think they probably have. So anyway, so there is some suggestion of putting this on alcohol bottles that, but, you know, not everybody wants to go that far, but they want to say things like this will cause cancer or, you know, alcohol gives you your liver cancer. So there's that. And then the other one is to restrict the availability. They want fewer outlets to be able to sell alcohol. They want restricted hours. They want all sorts of things. And one of the key things that they've buried in there is removing alcohol from places where minors might be. Now that sounds, when I've talked to my friends about what? this and they go, well, of course, of course, why would you want to be around kids? Kids shouldn't be in pubs. And I go, well, hang on a second, sporting events and cultural events. It would mean that you can't go to the theatre and have a glass of wine at interval any longer because there might be kids there. You can't go to the ballet. Now, you know, depending on who's listening, you might think, well, it doesn't matter about the ballet. But I, I looked this up. The West End in England brings 10 billion US dollars into the economy. And some of that comes, some of what funds them is the drinks they sell at intervals. And you can't neck a whole bottle of wine or vodka at interval. You have a glass, you know. Right. But the idea that there might be kids there means the alcohol's got to go. So the effect of this would be not to ban alcohol, but to what people in the industry are calling denormalize it. So if you think about cigarettes, you can smoke cigarettes. And there's no problem, right? You can buy them, you can smoke them, except you can't smoke them in restaurants, you can't smoke them in the theatre, you can't smoke them in sporting grounds. So it doesn't matter that you're allowed to smoke them. There's nowhere that you can smoke them. And because nobody watches you smoking. It means that the idea of cigarette smoking becomes something that's abnormal. Now, we all agree with that. We think that's good for tobacco. But that was done by the World Health Organization and it worked. So they're thinking about doing that for alcohol, which means if you can't have it anywhere, you're not going to have it and you don't think of yourself as somebody who wants to have it. So there's that. Wow. That is really nuts. Now, I do want to ask you this because this is really kind of a U.S. thing. And I know some people in the audience are going to be like, oh, my God, you're so conservative. After COVID, there were a lot of people who lost faith in the World Health Organization for some of their draconian and incorrect assumptions about COVID. How much credence does the World Health Organization still have after some missteps, not just with COVID, but some other things too? They've lost a little bit of credibility, haven't they? I'll give you the, the answer I told uh, that my sister said when I was telling her about some of the things I discovered. She said, I don't want to hear that. We need institutions that stand for science and medicine. And particularly in a world of where anti-vaxxers are becoming more powerful, we need these institutions. I can't speak to all of the other things that the WHO is being accused of. I'm certainly aware of them, but I'm not expert enough to comment on them. But on this issue, there are some big questions that need to be asked. There's some cultural issues. Okay, so they changed the paradigm completely. So the first yes. thing was, let's prevent binge drinking. Yeah. And now they're saying literally all alcohol is bad at all times. There's no yes. safe level of alcohol use. That's right. Yes. I want to start out with a question that is really important to this audience. What is moderate alcohol consumption? So it's between 11 and 15 grams of alcohol per day. So for, Can we talk um, about glasses? Yes. So for <laughs> uh, a man, that would be two standard drinks or two glasses of wine per day. For a woman, that would be one. And I have to say that that level has been set quite low, but that is understood to be moderate drinking at the moment. And that has been until recently, most government guidelines around the world. It is, depending on, you know, the government, it is sometimes set higher. There's not really good research on exactly how much 
affects you every day, but it's usually two for men and one for women. Uh Oh, I guess I'm an alcoholic then because I usually do two. So what about the studies and how they were conducted? Because there's some things about the size of the studies and how they were done. There is, I know you're familiar with him. He's also been on the show, David Morrison, who Mm -hmm. writes The Wine Gourd. And he came on the show to talk about wine and health. He wrote a wonderful piece again, a couple of years ago that said why we will never know whether or not alcohol is good or bad for us. And his premise was, how would we ever know since everybody's body is different, everybody's environment is different, everybody's proclivity towards certain cancers or certain disease is different. If you take all of that into effect, plus behavior, eating and drinking, there's no possible way to do a study that would ever make that right. With all due respect, I know he has a scientific background. I actually disagree with that. This is true for everything, but you can't determine an individual's proclivity, but at a population level, you can look at a tendency. So what's needed to sort this out is you need a randomized control trial, and that would solve the problem. There have been some animal studies. Animal studies aren't perfect either. There have been some animal studies done in the Czech Republic that appear to have shown that alcohol has a cardio vascular protective effect. So there was a randomised control trial proposed in the United States. It was going to be done by the National Institute of Health. And in 2018, I think it was, they went and they raised money to do it. It was going to be finally the study to end all studies to prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt. They'd begun recruiting people. They had about 40 or 50 researchers who were working on it and they had raised money from the industry. So somebody from the NIH had actually gone to pitch, uh, you know, heads of big alcohol companies because they have an interest in knowing the truth. Of course. To find out if they would fund it. And so I think the alcohol industry kicked in something like $67 million. So eventually they had $100 million in the pot to play with. And they had a researcher called Ken Mukamal from Beth Deacon uh, Israel Hospital who has done a lot of research onto alcohol and he was going to head it up. But there was an enormous outcry about the fact that the alcohol industry had funded it and it was pulled as a result. So I spoke to Dr Mukamal. I actually went to Boston last year to speak to him about it. He's a very well-regarded researcher in this field. He's been absolutely defamed and smeared by people. He was going to be on the group for the US dietary guidelines, which are up for grabs at the moment. They get revised every five years and they're they're currently being revised at the moment. Um, He was going to be on that panel and he was kicked off because he'd been associated with this randomised control trial. And he said to me, he had actually given a presentation on what how they were going to design the trial and, and you know, whatever. But he said as, as soon as he'd done that, the money went to the National Institute of Health and he had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with the executive. He promised nothing. He simply showed them what the design of the trial was going to be. And he said, I told them that I would publish in the New England Journal of Medicine regardless of what the result was. If right. it came and it said there is no benefit to alcohol, I'm going to publish that because, you know, it worked for his reputation as a scientist either way. But some of the neo-prohibitionists got onto it and they accused him of being in the back pocket of alcohol companies and he's been pulled off everything. It's the most appalling thing. So I said to him, why do you keep fighting this, you know? And he said, because he doesn't drink himself, he drinks a couple of beers a month, he said. Um, and he said, because this isn't science. This is this isn't science. This is ideology. It's very strange. Well, one of the things that the trial was criticized for was that it wasn't going to take account of the fact that alcohol is linked to breast cancer. And that's that's unquestioned. It is. And he said, how would you design a trial to show giving people cancer? You can't run a medical trial whose 
goal is to give people cancer so you can see the effect. And he said to get the number of people who would get breast cancer, it would have to be the largest randomised control trial in history and it, it can't be done. So he said a lot of the things that, you know, the trial was criticised for were, were false. And the other thing he said, he said, where did trials come from? You know, look at Wagavi and Ozempic. Who funded those trials? The companies that developed them. Right. It's usual to have private funding. The important thing is that they don't get a say in the results or the design of the trial. Well, the only people that are going to pay for it are people who have skin in the game. So you're not going to get somebody to pay. I mean, this is the whole thing why a lot of wine research isn't funded, because there are things that the wine industry doesn't want us to know about. For instance, I would say like red wine headaches. They just figured this out. A migraine guy figured it out as a total secondary thing that there might be a chemical in the skins of grapes. It might be because of more solar radiation. And that's why higher alcohol wines sometimes give people headaches. But that was incidental because the wine industry would be the ones to fund that. And they don't want people knowing that that's an issue. So of course not. You know, I'm actually, I'm actually going to slightly disagree with that as well. I, I think, I think there's a big idea. So I've done a lot of science reporting before I did wine. And there's this big idea that, that things don't get funded because somebody has an interest in stopping it. And the reality is the wine industry just doesn't have the money or the interest. <laughs> there's that too, right? Do you know what there's I mean? No I, I don't think, there's I don't no think, cash. I don't think they're thinking to themselves, hmm, better not research that, you know, it might be bad for us. I don't think they're thinking about it at all. It's a good point. It's a good point. All right. So the other thing is in their studies where they came up with these ideas about causality. And and the other thing is I do want to ask you because you said it's not questioned about the link between breast cancer and alcohol. But is that new? Because it used to be that there wasn't causality. There was correlation. Oh, look, this 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 is getting to the the um, absolute limits of my own knowledge. So as I understand it, the Evidence is pretty clear that heavy alcohol use will contribute to about seven cancers. One of them is pancreatic, one of them is breast, one of them is colorectal, and then there's four others which are for liver, obviously, esophagus, liver, mouth, throat, and larynx cancer. I think that's pretty well established. And the other thing is that there are some cancers for which alcohol has a protective effect, but that will never get talked about. But I think it's, I think light to moderate drinking has a protective effect against uh, kidney cancer. So there were some omissions and biases that you wrote about in your articles, which I will post links to all of them. And the cardiologists were especially irritated by this. There was Professor Curtis Ellison, who had some very compelling things to say about this. And the fact that there's all these known benefits of alcohol with diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. The um, guidelines were based on something called the global burden of disease, where people go in and they, you know, they look at the data and, and so on. And there was a study done, it was either 2016 or 2018, but it was published in 2018. And the global burden of disease went in and they said, there is no J curve, this effect doesn't exist. And the WHO based some of the recommendations on that. Now, those same researchers went back in and re-looked at the data and the J curve popped back up again, but the WHO guidelines didn't change. What Christopher Snowden said in our initial podcast was in order to further whatever the narrative was, they actually just lopped off the non-effect stuff, right? The moderate and light drinking. What they published was just the very high correlation with cancers and bad things to make it look really bad. And it was perplexing as to why this was being buried. And then also they really didn't want to show that there were any benefits to alcohol at all. And the other thing I would like to ask you about is the Italians especially, thank God, 
they are the only ones. I don't know where the French have been in this, but the Italians stood up and they were furious about this. Yes. Yes. The Portuguese and Spanish also did. I Again, I'm not sure where the French are in this, but they raised objections about wine and nutrition in the Mediterranean basin. The idea that health risks have to be understood within cultural and social context, that meals and healthy lifestyles and dietary patterns, the Mediterranean diet, there is very, very good evidence that that is probably the best diet that you could have in the Western world. And it incorporates wine. Okay, so this is a really big issue. So um, I'll just take them one by one. So what the Italians were angry about was Ireland going ahead and deciding to label wine. Uh, I think their labels say, uh, you know, warning alcohol, cancer, liver, all of those sorts of things. Now, they went off the reservation, right? They they that's went right. out now, of the EU standards. So to explain what that's happened right. there. So th- that's right. So as part of the EU, you can't just go and change regulations like that by yourself. So the Italians are suing the Irish over that because they can see that this is going to be terrible for the Italian wine industry. But the Irish have gone further. And it, again, it's part of this denormalization. It's taking it away from its context. So you have to do sort of special measures if you want it. So the other thing is, is there's something called BECA, the EU's beating cancer plan. And the WHO and its partners, which we should talk about in a second, tried to say that no level of alcohol was safe. Now, the the member states, especially ones that had, you know, wine growers among them, did actually water that down. They, they moved it to, you know, moderate consumption or heavy consumption of alcohol is a problem. So the French are on it and the Spanish are on it at that kind of level. So to turn to the Mediterranean diet, there was a, um, a Congress done last September in Spain, run by a group of EU organisations that brought together a whole bunch of doctors and scientists to actually talk about these issues. And there was a lot of research presented that the polyphenols in wine interact with the polyphenols in the Mediterranean diet, and they have a synergistic effect. So the health benefits are sort of amplified if you have them in concert with these other things. And they said the number, the most important thing is actually olive oil. I said a lot of people oh, try yeah. and eat the Mediterranean diet and remove the olive oil and the whole thing falls apart. The right. olive oil is, is critical and small amounts of red wine, the polyphenols interact with the polyphenols in olive oil and, and whatever. So the health benefit comes with this particular diet. I guess what I don't understand is why Italy and France and Spain, Germany also has a wine industry. I don't know where they they shake out on this. But I mean, these are three enormous powers within the EU. And yet they are being trampled on. I don't understand this. I don't think people understood the scale of the threat. Um, You know, when I was in uh, Toledo in Spain at that Congress, there was an official from the Spanish government who said to me, you know, we've got six years left if we don't do something about this. They've woken up in alarm in the last year and said, my God, our, our wine industries are at stake. But here's what's important about this. The wine industry isn't at stake from legislation. It's at stake from the message getting out that wine is going to be deadly for you and people going, well, I won't touch it. You know, prohibition last time was top down. It was the government legislating against alcohol. And so people just went bootlegging or, you know, moonshine yeah. making or, or whatever. This is different. Nobody's saying you can't have alcohol, but the message is if you do have it, you're going to get cancer. And so people are choosing not to touch it. And that's a different thing. Well, and let's be really clear. In January 2023, the WHO said that alcohol is a group one carcinogen, yes. like asbestos and tobacco. And they said that there is this causality and that any amount of alcohol is going to kill you. I just don't understand how humans have consumed alcohol for thousands of years 
I mean, cigarettes are much newer. Hard alcohol is much newer. Wine, though, in particular, is something that has a great historical and cultural heritage. It's just bizarre to me, again, that the EU would roll over on this. And not well, only this that. Is a very, this is a very interesting question. Right. So how bad is the risk? You know, like, I've had cancer. I don't want to have cancer again. If I drink wine, is wine going to give me cancer? That's a really big thing. It doesn't matter that it might give you some cardiovascular benefits. I don't want to get cancer. So what's the actual risk? Now, there are some people for whom light to moderate drinking is risky. In 2017, they said there were 23,000 cancers in the EU caused by light to moderate drinking, of which about 50% were breast cancer. Now, we know that if you've got the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, you probably shouldn't drink alcohol. You are at risk of getting breast cancer. You're not necessarily at risk of dying from breast cancer, but you're at risk of getting it. But let's put this in context. So 23,000 people in the EU, probably 100,000 people worldwide who may be at risk if they drink moderately. Compare that to 9 million people a year who die from cardiovascular diseases, 8 million people who still die from smoking. 100,000 people worldwide. Why are we having a massive, expensive public health campaign over what is an extraordinarily trivial possibility. Now it's not trivial for people who get cancer. I don't want to I don't want to say that, but the risk of of population death from light to moderation drinking is so tiny. Why has this become a focus of policy? And that's a really interesting question. And that's the heart of this. Who is advising the WHO? Uh, Christopher Snowden has done some work on this and I I, I separately had discovered some of this and that's how I came across his work. When I found out, I couldn't believe it. I fell over backwards. We'll take a step away from the show to thank our sponsors this week, but I do want to say, please make sure you listen to the second half of the show. There are some revelations that I could not believe. I'm still reeling from it and I think you will be too after you listen. But before that, please Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Check out a page of my picks. And when you order from anything on the site with my special URL, that's wineaccess.com slash WFMP, you will get 10% off your first order. Wine Access is an amazing site. They have a team of experts who really know wine. They don't put anything on the site that they wouldn't drink. And when I say they, I don't just mean one person. It is an entire team of experts that gets together and decides whether or not the wines will make it. So few do, but the ones that are on the site are fantastic. And then you get a further level of selectivity when you go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. If you want to know what I love from Wine Access's selection, then you should join the wine club. It's just $150 Four shipments a year for six bottles, shipping's included. You get a personal note from me, wine tasting videos, and you get wines that I have personally selected. Many of these wines we have gone out and sourced because they are things that I feel really passionately about and the team loves them too. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal. Join the wine club. You will love getting these wines just shipped to your door. They are really high quality examples and you're going to learn a ton because each selection that I make is meant to teach you something. So make sure you do it today. Wineaccess.com slash normal or wineaccess.com slash WFM. And don't forget, if you are looking for back episodes of the podcast, you would need to join Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 
Wine for Normal People. And if you join at any level, you will have access to the back catalog. As you know, content takes a lot of effort to make. Although Wine Access is our sponsor for the current year, and I am able to make the content available to you at no cost because they are sponsoring it. The other stuff is now behind Patreon. So please, if you're thinking about joining, just push the button. And at the entry level, it's $21 a year, price of a bottle of wine, and you get that whole back catalog plus so much content and a great community of wine lovers. Also, don't forget wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes is how you'll sign up for a live interactive class with me. And now let's get back to the show. What Felicity is about to tell us will blow your mind. Seriously. So in 2018, when the WHO came out with its safer policy, they did so with a a number of partners. And one of the major partner was a company called Movendi International. Now, Movendi International is a rebranded name. They changed their name in uh, 2020, probably because their real name was, was too weird for anybody. They were founded in 1851, 1852 in the United States, and their original name was the Order of Good Templars. They were a temperance movement that was a spin-off of the Freemasons. They were the people who were partly behind prohibition the first time around. And because they were so successful, their membership dropped off. But their membership has grown. And if you look at who is, you know, working with the WHO, it's them. And in fact, if you look at the look at the WHO's guide for journalists and you Google all of the names, which I did, you find they're from groups like the Non-Communicable Diseases Alliance, which sounds great, sounds very medical, until you find out it's a member of the IOGT NGO, which was the International Order of Good Templars, uh, oh which my is Swedish-based. And the the people from the NCD Alliance are, are people who give keynote speeches at Movendi conferences. Uh, who else have we got? We've got the European Policy Alcohol Alliance. That's also a temperance group. We've got the Global Alcohol Policy Group, also a temperance group. So, you know, these are people who are temperance groups who are advising the WHO. And some of this is extraordinary. Yeah, and they've all given keynote addresses at Movendi. They're all the same people from, from what appear to be different organisations. But but here's the thing. The people who advised Canada on their new drinking guidelines, which are Which is also, so dumb. Oh, my gosh. Well, listen to this. The three of the people who advised Canada to change its drinking guidelines are also members of Movendi International or have accepted hospitality to go and speak with them. And the WHO, Movendi, and a group of others got a $15 million grant to do a worldwide public health campaign against alcohol, which has been coordinated by a PR group in New York called Vital Strategies. Now, some of the PR people behind them worked on anti-tobacco. So they're bringing the anti-tobacco playbook to alcohol. And what's very important about this is they have scientists and doctors involved. This isn't just a, a sort of group of religious nuts. But if you go to the Mavendi site, you notice something very quickly, which is they don't distinguish between different types of alcohol consumption. For them, if you're drinking moderately, it's exactly the same as if you're, you know, drinking a bottle of vodka every night. And and they say that the alcohol industry only talks about light to moderate drinking because it's a front for selling alcohol. They're trying to discredit the whole idea that there is a such a thing as light to moderate drinking. What do they think that 90% of us are doing who don't have all of these health problems? Most of us aren't don't have huge drinking problems. They think they think we're kidding ourselves. They think that it's an alcohol problem that we're telling ourselves we're connoisseurs or whatever. Wait, so this is basically the same thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to frame this for a second though. I, I I don't want to to stop your flow, but this is temperance again. Yes. Yes, it is. 
In fact, when Canada came out with its new guidelines, 16 doctors, scientists and academics wrote an open letter in one of their newspapers saying this is abstinence and abstinence is not a good public health policy around alcohol. This doesn't work. And it kicked off huge alarm within Canada. A whole bunch of economists and libertarians and and medical people have have started to look into this and gone, I beg your pardon? I'm sorry, who is, you know, helping to frame Canada's alcohol policy? But here you should understand that the United States is currently revising its US dietary guidelines, and they have looked at Canada as an evidence-based uh, policy decision. So it's also influencing what happens inside the United States. So all of these policy decisions all over the world are being based on what is apparently the best science, but it's being based on science that's driven by temperance groups. I think that's astounding. It is astounding. I had no idea. Nobody has any awesome, idea. But I'm not surprised at all. And then it is working because there was a Gallup poll that says younger Americans, is working, 18 yes. to 34, 39% believe alcohol is bad, like, period. And they think cannabis is less harmful. And they... Oh, I'm glad you, you brought up cannabis because Movendi... No, and, and by the way, like, what the hell is up with... There's no regulation on cannabis really at all. I, I'm just so shocked by what you just told me. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a hard time processing this. So we are basically heading into temperance too. We've got yes. a whole bunch of people who are the malevolent hand and you know who the malevolent hand is. Yeah, we do. We know their names. Right. And now we're going to have to figure out how to expose these people. This is insanity. I had no, I mean, you had to have the sense that this was going on. It, it had to be somebody because again, even back in 2018, what was going on with the Lancet? The Lancet was the first one to make that J-shaped curve. Well, and, and, you know, and I here's, mean, here's what's up with that? Thing. Well, you know, the, the Lancet article, which the WHO use as evidence for their position, was written by WHO staffers. You know, it's the circular uh, logic that's being used. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. Now, I don't believe for one minute that there are officials inside the WHO who are taking money from temperance groups. I think it's probably just... I don't know, laziness, you know, you just do whatever's easiest. And if somebody turns up and they've got a bag full of policies and what appear to be evidence, you probably go, yeah, okay, thanks. Um, but it's, it's, what about it's, confirmation it's, bias though? There's confirmation well, bias too, right? So if already you're somebody who's working on things and you see that heavy alcohol use is horrible, it's exactly what you're saying, but it's not that we, as wine writers and wine educators and things like that, that we have any interest in promoting excessive alcohol use at all. I mean, no, I am exactly. I am completely against that. I am totally pro-moderation. I am totally pro having wine with a meal, enjoying it with people, you know, comes in a big bottle so we can share it. It's more about the cultural and historical background of this. But I cannot for the life of me understand these people, they already have it in their head. They must already have it in their head because how could you possibly go in and look at this information and then not question it at all because that's what's happening. They're not even questioning it. Well, this is a very interesting question because when I started looking into this, I took a hard look at my own biases. And I, every doctor I've interviewed, I've brought it up. What is the evidence? What is the uncertainty? What don't we know? What do we know? Because I, I want to challenge my own biases around this. And it is, it is a fact. Alcohol beyond a certain level stops being harmless and it starts to be really, really dangerous, right? There's no doubt about that. And apparently most people aren't aware that heavy consumption of alcohol carries a risk of cancer. So, you know, I think there is a public health message that needs to, to be out there. But the idea 
that, you know, having a glass of wine with dinner is going to raise your cancer risk is absurd. It's very difficult to understand this, especially when you see like the blue zones, people are living a long time in Sardinia. They're drinking a lot of wine. They're drinking more than probably what would be recommended by the WHO. I have to ask, though, you have said in your articles that this is the worst thing you've seen in 25 years of reporting about wine. Which element of, I mean, there's so much here. I loved Jason Haas from Toddless Creek wrote something on his blog about your piece and said, or what they're asking for is zero risk, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the other problems in the framing of this. Nothing has zero risk. You could go out of your house tomorrow and get hit by a, a bus, right? And nothing in the world is zero risk. Alcohol and wine is not zero risk. And what the who is asking for is zero risk. So I spoke to Ken Mukamal about this, the guy who was going to run the randomized control trial. Right. He said the following, I've got it written down here. He said, the question of safe levels is the same question for all drugs. Quote, when we give people statins to lower their cholesterol, we know that that lowers their risk of heart disease. But unfortunately, statins increase your risk of diabetes. So, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen the other. Everything has a risk. But the oncologist who spoke in Toledo also talked about breast cancer. And many of the drugs that are used to treat breast cancer are extremely cardiotoxic. They're dreadful. And he said he was seeing better outcomes in his patients who drank a glass of wine at night, that that actually ameliorated the risk of the cardiotoxic effects of chemotherapy. So should they be drinking a glass of wine at night or shouldn't they, you know? And and he also said, because he lives in Stellenbosch, which of course the wine industry is very important there, he also said having a glass of wine was really important to them, you know, at a time which was really terrible in their life. Having a glass of wine was a sign of life. So is it a good thing to have a glass of wine or is it a bad thing to have a glass of wine? Well, I can tell you, I've asked the listeners of this show before about that. And everyone has said that they don't care about the messaging around wine and health because everybody has a risk tolerance and the pleasure, if it takes a few years off of your life, but it gives you enormous pleasure and makes you happy and gives you moments that you can think about and gives you some intellectual stimulation then they are okay with it. Now, I would venture to say that probably almost everyone listening to this does not have a drinking problem. And so the idea is different. But I think among wine drinkers, you're not going to convince them that this okay, is, so, is so something you asked bad. Me- but the, the, prob- but the, the big problem is future wine drinkers and the idea of the influencer culture. One of the other things I, I want to ask you about is – the idea of the wellness and the yoga and the clean wine, you know, it's all of that, uh, the Instagram stuff. And, and so I feel like that's also tied in with the temperance movement, no? Okay, so so you asked, I want to go back to that question of why is this the worst thing I've seen? So first of all, it's the dishonesty of it. But when you use that word cancer, it's finished. It's such a terrifying, scary word. So we know that younger people are more risk averse. They're incredibly risk averse. They don't, uh, they don't drink, they don't drive, they don't have sex, they're not getting pregnant. And so you say to this group, alcohol will give you cancer and that's it. They're never going to take it up. Why would they? Why would you take up something that's going to give you cancer? So that's part of the problem. So the fact that older drinkers aren't worried about it isn't really the problem for the wine industry. It's the fact that if people never learn the benefit of having a glass of wine with dinner, that's that's the real problem. So what was your, what was your next question? Hold on. I do want to ask about this, and this is another point that I make. Where is that warning on the back of a bag of Cheetos or Doritos? Yeah. Why, why isn't that being looked at either? 
Well, I mean, but do we really want a world where everything is just things no. and do's and don'ts? I, I don't. No, but but that's the whole point, though. The point is that is wine worse for you than eating all of this really terrible processed food that is out well, there that yeah, will we'll probably see. clog your arteries and give you a heart attack and all of this other thing? And I think in the wider context of alcohol is something that is consumed in a very specific time of day for most people. It is consumed in a very specific environment for most people. And yet we vilify it because I don't know what the, there's an idea of control over this particular product that is really interesting. And I think the United States has a bigger problem than Europe with this. We don't feel that we need to go after Frito-Lay or that we need to go after McDonald's or that we need to go after these. Well, a lot of people would like to go after those companies. But, of course, those companies have very deep pockets when it comes to lobbying. You know, there have been attempts to do. But you know what's really interesting is if you look at the research around labelling, people are really frightened of labels and it turns out they don't work. Consumers literally don't care um, right, about things right. like calories and and whatever. So you, you can put all of that as much as you like um, on it and it's not going to affect your sales by and large. But you tell people that this could give you a risk of cancer and that's it, job done, the whole thing is over. I don't know where we go from here because the, I think, first of all, you should just tell people about the temperance movement because most people's jaws drop when I tell them this. They go, you're kidding me. And I go, no, look, here's how it works. And I go, you're joking. Um, so I think most people would just fall over if they found out where some of this messaging is coming from. And the, the Mediterranean diet, the research is so clear that the Mediterranean diet is is so good for you. So it's confusing. I'm even a little confused talking to you because I think that you're saying that on the one hand, wine does cause cancer, but yeah, then on the other hand, you're saying it shouldn't be on the label or what's your stance on it? Heavy alcohol consumption causes cancer, right? Heavy prolonged over a period of time. But should you should you put scary labels for the fact that there are some unfortunate people who have a genetic disposition that if they do drink wine, they're probably going to get sick? 100,000 deaths per year worldwide from that. But compare that to 9 million people dead from cardiovascular disease. Is it worth imposing a, a massive um, change for the fact that 23,000 people in the EU probably shouldn't have alcohol? Is it the responsibility of the wine industry to warn those 23,000 people? It's the same thing as sulfites. The, it, the problem is like people think sulfites now do all sorts of things because there's a sulfite warning. So now if you put a cancer oh, warning Oh, you asked on, me about you asked me about clean wine. Okay, so um, I feel really strongly about this. I think the, the clean wine people and the natural wine people to a certain extent have done tremendous damage to the wine industry um, with all all of their sort of scary marketing that there's all these terrible things in wine that, um, you know, are bad for you. The thing that's bad for you in wine is ethanol, right? If you right. consume too much ethanol, you, 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 things are bad. But the fact that somebody uses, you know, some bloody processing aid um, is, is neither here nor there. But I, I think, I think they opened the way for people to start looking at wine in a very sort of dubious, skeptical way. I think they did a lot of damage. That's really interesting. I am not a big advocate of that movement. And I felt like, why would you fight against your own industry when we're so small anyway? And we should all be saying this is an alternative type of wine, not that it's a better type of wine and that everybody else is, is terrible. And conventional winemaking doesn't actually, most people don't use that many additives, but no, it they made don't, it Because they're seem... too cheap. <laughs> right, <laughs> they exactly. Wanna, they don't want to like buy a, stuff they don't have to. A small producer cannot afford to buy all of the additives that a large producer is. If you want to actually drink better, just drink from smaller wineries because they can't afford it, frankly. 
But I don't know. It's it's a very, very complex subject. And I mean, what what is the wine industry going to do? We've been just sitting on our butts doing nothing for well, years to- now. I spoke to the European um, sort of wine lobby about this and the number one thing, and if you go into the temperance people's website, the number one thing is they've created a monster that they call big alcohol. So there's lots and lots of pages devoted to the strategies by big alcohol and how big alcohol wants to do this and big alcohol wants to do that. And they're very clear that everybody belongs to big alcohol. So, I mean, I find this absurd, the fact that the the average, you know, size of a vineyard in in Europe is under four hectares and these people are part of the big alcohol to get you. But but what they suggested that CEV don't ask me to pronounce the French the full French because can't but the CEV they said it's really important that people in wine focus on the fact that they're small and local. People in wine have to get out from under the idea that they're part of big alcohol. So no liaising with big alcohol, actual big alcohol on the messaging. The messaging has to be we're a small family farm in Spain or Italy or or wherever it is that you focus on. It's regional. It's local. There are people behind it. Um, it's traditional. Additional, all of that, but I think I think the only the only way is to actually expose the people who are the the prohibitionists because it's an extraordinary story. Uh, it is an amazing story, and I don't know how they've gotten away with it for this long. One has to wonder how long they had been planning this before they since eighteen fifty one. Since eighteen fifty one. But, you know, they they lost the battle, right? The three martini lunch was a definite loss of the battle. You had World War II, which was a loss of the battle. You had the 50s and 60s, 70s, 80s, just complete loss. And they've been losing. So, I mean, I'm just pondering this. What is it about this moment in time that they have decided now is the time to pounce? There must be something that has made people particularly Mm. susceptible to this messaging. It's not actually even people it's these organizations now that are putting this bs forward you know well i i think there's a very simple explanation and it's the fact that um across the developed world you're seeing an aging population and you're seeing a, a growing burden of disease from things like diabetes uh, obesity cardiovascular disease and so governments at the moment are very open to anything anything that will lower that disease footprint and if if scaring people about having a glass of wine you know, at night is going to do it then they're they're open to that and of course you know people take policy direction from experts if the experts on the planet the WHO tell you something who are you to say that they're wrong you just go okay that sounds reasonable let's change our drinking guidelines because there's a growing number of old people and the growing number of old people have lots of expensive diseases to be cured. Yeah. And a lot of them have cardiovascular disease, which could benefit from a glass of red wine every night. What's next? What's going to happen here? What will the wine industry do to take up this fight? I don't know, because the wine industry is facing a crisis anyway of overproduction and falling consumption. I I think there are such big problems. I think there's going to be much less money um, for dealing with anything extraneous at the moment. The thing I would like to see um, stop happening is I'd I'd like to see people in wine not make any claims about health that are wrong. Over the years, it's driven me insane seeing how many people write about wine giving these miraculous benefits. I always think about when Big Tobacco went in front of Congress and I think it was 1994, they didn't get done because their product was poisonous, which it is. They got done because they lied about it. Right. And I think it would be very easy for people in the temperance movement to pick up some of this, you know, bullshit that people in wine like to believe about wine and go in front of Congress and say, look, they lied. They told people it was a healthy beverage that's going to give you longer life and health and, look, it gives you cancer at a certain point. 
one very frustrating thing is the mainstream press, which I tell people all the time. If something is available in, on CNN or the New York Times, not the wine column, or the Financial Times, if it is hitting the Guardian, if it is already in that mainstream, the study or whatever the information is on wine has already been so distorted that yeah. whatever the story is, it can't possibly be true. My friends are always forwarding me things. Oh, look, champagne is great for you on CNN.com. Well, guess what? By the time it gets to a journalist like that, the story has already been completely distorted. It's been simplified. It's been packaged up. It's been dumbed down. But the problem is, what do we do about that? Because we're not lying about that as an industry, but other people are picking up on that. A lot of the journalists that contact me, if I ever speak to a journalist who write for those outlets, they have nothing to do with wine. They just happen to pick up a story and occasionally they write about food. So what do we do about that? Generally speaking, the big newspapers and, and the BBC and those big things, generally speaking, they tend to go straight to the original research and they get it right. They usually talk to the researchers who did it. What happens is by the time it filters through to the wine press or the popular press or the popular newspapers is people report the story that they read in those outlets and they get it wrong. I think I think those big outlets are generally pretty good about the way that they report things. Not so much with this story. The big the big newspapers have been very uncritical at looking at the the WHO data and so on. Uh, which is not surprising because you know it comes back to this thing about you know who are we to question these these great big institutions. You have to believe that everything that the big institutions are doing is unbiased. So where do we go from here? What is your plan and how do you see the industry proceeding? Oh, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of pain in the years ahead. I think people who've built good businesses can batten down the hatches and get through it. I think we're probably going to see a lot of consolidation. We're going to see a lot of bankruptcies coming up. We've been through a golden period of the last 25 years where everything expanded and everything looked amazing. And I think we're about to face a period of intense contraction and that's global and worldwide. But if we do, we should... It should be for normal economic reasons, not because people are being told things which aren't true. Natural mature businesses can't grow forever. So at some point there will be a contraction or a market correction. There's a lot of people who drink wine. I put that in air quotes because they're not true wine drinkers, but probably revert back to 1990s levels of drinking, which really leaves us with people who are very dedicated producers and not a whole lot of hobbyists anymore. But I do think you're absolutely right. The biggest risk, as you said, is that people stop exploring wine because of these false narratives. Now, again, I'm talking about regular people, not the 10%. I'm talking about the 90% of people who are not going to be affected by high consumption of alcohol. And it would just be so sad if this movement tanked all of the culture and the, the 10,000 years of history that we have had with wine. Well, one thing I do think about um, is that 10,000 years of history. So I, I'm I'm very interested in books and the book trade. And I remember when the Kindle came out in about 2010, everybody was like, you know, when it inside publishing was like, when it reaches 2% of the market, then you'll see a big change. It got to 2%. And suddenly, you know, everyone was like, books are finished. Nobody wants a physical product anymore. You know, digital has, has eaten the world and whatever. And you know what? It turned out not to be true. It turned out the book was this perfect technology and people now buy more paper books than they did before the Kindle came out. And I think with wine and with beer as well, these are historic products that have existed for more than 8,000 years and they've done it for a reason. They fulfilled a human need. So I think on the one hand, I think the future is not as 
much fun and exuberant as it's been in the last 25 years. I think there is a contraction coming, but I would never, ever bet against something that's 8,000 years old. Well, I like that. That's a great place for us to stop. All right. Well, Felicity, you're going to keep us posted on what's going on. I will post your work and I will also keep people up to date, but I would love for you to come back on again when there's more movement. You're just, you're spectacular and I adore you. (laughs) And I really do mean it. I think you are the, you are the absolute best writer in wine right now hands down there is nobody better than you no everybody knows it and with that this has been another episode of wine for normal people thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time